Coaches, athletes, weekend warriors. Have you thought about recovery or regeneration? Today we oftentimes think in training about the stimulus we put on our body and the workload that we do to fatigue us daily, but we don't give enough to the recovery component. Simply Faster has numerous options to enhance your recovery in between the sessions of work that you put your body through daily. They have Theraguns, Normatic Regeneration Kits, and they're all cost-effective options. My athletes at my high school often use the Theragun in between intervals, race days, and training sessions. In the world we live in, it's hard to guarantee that we're going to get a doctor's visit. Simply Faster provides you the option where you don't have to be behind a paywall to get the care that you need with the equipment that they provide. So get yourself the regeneration and recovery that you need and level up. Simply Faster. Check it out. Welcome, everyone, to the Companions of the Compendium podcast. Today, I have Dr. Jason Avedigian, who's here today to talk about all sorts of things in response to injuries, concussions, connections to ACL injuries, lower extremities, neurocognition, all sorts of different stuff. This is going to be an exciting conversation for me because of the simple fact that in sports, these are the injuries that can really mess up our athletes when it comes to concussions or ACLs. And they are a reality of sport. They are a reality of physical activity. And we're just kind of getting to the tip of the iceberg of preventative measures, uh, longitudinal problems that come from the injuries and experience. So I'm super excited to have uh, Jason on today. How we doing, buddy? Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing great, man. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. I know a long time ago, I was introduced to you at a high school track and field clinic of all places. Yep. And uh, we uh, connected and we hit it off really well. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. So yeah, getting same, into it. Care, yeah, getting into it. Um, when we think about what brought you to the, I mean, obviously, lots of people get into sports performance and in a variety of different ways. But what led you down this particular path of research, doctoral level um, understanding and interest into this particular rabbit hole that you're in? And then also talk to us a little bit about some of maybe the mentors that helped develop you along sure. through this process. Yeah, I'll just, I guess I'll start kind of back from the beginning. Um, did my undergraduate at Michigan State University. Uh, I was originally uh, uh, majoring in mechanical engineering typical like classic Midwestern sort of engineering program, gears you up towards like automotive engineering. Uh, realized pretty soon into it, a couple of years into it, that that wasn't really the route that I wanted to take. I was always an athlete growing up, played a pretty high level of hockey and lacrosse and saw my fair share of concussions, ACL, stuff like that, you know, different, you know, the different sports. We were all pretty active as kids. Um, but after a couple of years of doing the engineering, I actually decided to add a kinesiology degree while I was at Michigan State. So it took me a little bit longer than most students uh, to get through undergraduate. Uh, but I was really, uh, it really gave me a lot of skills to keep uh, progressing forward. And I'm really fortunate that I uh, continued on with the engineering and the kinesiology combined because it led me kind of to what I'm doing now and what I've done recently. I first got introduced actually into research while I was at Michigan State. Uh, it was with uh, concussion research with uh, one of my mentors through undergraduate and also through my PhD uh, as well, uh, Dr. Tracy Kovacin. 
she leads the sport concussion program at Michigan State, has done a lot of really great work uh, in that space and adolescent athletes and collegiate athletes. Uh, and so that's when I really first got introduced to research. And I found like concussion injuries were extremely fascinating because at that point, this was like 2013, 2014, um, they were talking about things like uh, head impact biomechanics and like biomechanical thresholds for concussions, uh, helmet design, different things like that. And the questions that they were having then are, you know, in all honesty, still questions that we're having now, but it was, it's such an individualized injury. And I just, I always thought that injury was fascinating. Did like some, you know, we go to different high schools in the, in the mid Michigan area and do different baseline assessments and things like that. It was, it was part of larger studies at the time. Um, but actually, as I transitioned into my master's at Ball State, I really didn't do any concussion work at that point. I uh, was mainly doing uh, more ACL biomechanics, ACL injury risk, and actually volleyball players at Ball State, uh, looking at how like warm-ups, different stretching strategies influence ACL mechanics during jump landings. But then it wasn't until I got back into uh, or started, I should say, my PhD uh, through the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, way out west. That's when I got back into the concussion space. Um, it was actually, of all places, there was like a Twitter thread right before I was getting into my PhD about this relationship between concussion and lower extremity injury. There's some, I don't even remember, honestly, uh, just some people going back and forth in like a Twitter conversation. I'm like, oh, this is kind of an interesting topic. Like, I've done some concussion stuff in the past. I've done some ACL lower extremity stuff for my master's. I'm like, I wonder really how deep this kind of uh, relationship is going. Like what's really been out there. And I started kind of looking through the research at that point. This is in 2018 at this point. I was like, wow, there's really not a lot out there in terms of like mechanisms to give kind of a, I guess, a general overview. What we know at this point is that athletes and military personnel as well because uh, concussions are very big in the military. Uh, but what we generally know at this point is individuals who have had a history of concussion or a recent history of concussion uh, tend to be at greater risk for lower extremity injuries, particularly the ankles, uh, the ankle and the knee joint uh, specifically. Uh, about a two to three times greater risk uh, for lower extremity injury. And what you have to really understand about that is the risk of these lower extremity injuries are well beyond the acute time point that an athlete returns to sport. So what we're, what we're generally seeing in the literature now is that, you know, three months post concussion, six months up to a year post concussion, uh, athletes still are demonstrating these higher risks for lower extremity injuries. And so what my PhD research looked at, uh, both in adolescent athletes and collegiate athletes kind of goes back full circle. I did uh, part of my dissertation back with Michigan state's athletes uh, so it's kind of cool to be able to go full circle with that. But essentially what my PhD research looked at was one were athletes who had histories of concussion. Did they demonstrate differences in biomechanics compared to athletes who didn't have histories of concussion? And two, what was the relationship between some of these more neurocognitive measures? So athletes do a lot of like computerized cognitive testing pre post concussion, what was the relationship between their performance on those type of assessments and their actual biomechanical performance? Was there, was there a relationship there? Uh, essentially kind of the big findings from my PhD work was that one, um, athletes who had a history of concussion, both adolescent and collegiate athletes, 
Uh, they tended to, when they did various jump landing uh, tasks, they tended to be, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is more stiff in their landing patterns. So particularly they had less ankle dorsiflexion, less knee flexion uh, than athletes who didn't have a history of concussion. And then the other, the other uh, I guess, kind of key finding from my dissertation work was that uh, when athletes were slower on these various neurocognitive assessments, so assessments of reaction time, uh, working memory, things like that, they tended to demonstrate uh, biomechanical patterns that you could consider to be, I guess, higher risk uh, compared to athletes who were faster on these types of assessments. And that follows what some of the previous literature has, has shown as well, is that regardless of whether an athlete has a concussion history or they don't have a history of concussion, those who tend to be worse on some of these neurocognitive measures tend to be at greater risk for lower extremity injury as well. And so there's kind of like this uh, complex, unique sort of interrelationship between general neurocognition, concussion injury, include that in there as well, and lower extremity injury risk. And so that's what was kind of the sort of the unique findings of my work and some of the work that I'm continuing to do. Uh, now as a postdoctoral researcher at uh, Emory. Awesome. So when we're looking at this stiffness, have we seen any, because I know like, oh, when we talk about like functional movement, right? And sure. functional movement screenings that potentially obviously lead to maybe ligament and tendon injuries and things like that. Have we found where, hey, they might, these people might be stiffer after concussions, but could it be that they were also stiffer previously that would lead to concussions by not being able to get their head out of the way, not being as quick on the uptake on protecting themselves, um, you know, that type of thing. So it's like, what I guess what I'm asking is have we found that there's somewhat of a loop in the system where it's like they have something already that's kind of there, then we get the concussion. And then because we get the concussion, we're more stiff. Then we get the ACL injury. And then because of guarding, we increase the chances of that happening again. Where How does how does that look in, a, in terms of that spiral? Have you seen sure. something like that? Um, no, that's a good question. Um, I guess probably the best way to describe it at this point is there are athletes, and I've been around quite a few of these athletes who tend to be more injury prone just in general. To give a perfect example. I was growing up playing hockey with one of my best friends and he was one of those athletes. He was a hockey player. Uh, one of my line mates at the time, he's one of those hockey players, like a very physical, aggressive player. Like, you know, you have these types of players, whether it's in contact sports, things like that, lacrosse, football, hockey, where they're just aggressive athletes. So you can just tell the way that they play. Uh, when we were growing up, he probably had, Oh God, probably six, at least six diagnosed concussions, uh, probably six or seven more undiagnosed. Eventually he was medically disqualified, oh but he gosh. was one of those athletes where he was prone to a, a lot of head impacts, but he was also prone to a lot of orthopedic type of injuries too, just because of the way that he played his style of play. He was just an aggressive kid. Very, he just liked to be in contact situations and I think that's something that you really have to consider with this kind of idea of like a cyclical loop of these types of things as well is how an athlete actually behaves. What's their personality type of traits? Do they want to be in those contact situations? Do they want to be more of a, I guess the best way is like a more of a finesse type of player, uh, things of that nature. I think that's really the biggest thing in terms of like these loops at this point with the injuries. 
is that there are, there are certain athletes who are just more injury prone in general, just because of the way that they play their, their style of play. In regards to this particular thing, have we seen this to be higher in different sports? So let's say obviously football and hockey tend to be the ones that we see probably the highest rate of concussion and then therefore ACLs and, and the nature of the sport being that you got lower leg contacts, you've got a slippery surface and, and obviously hockey, you also have a wet, potentially various surface in football, which creates a whole lot of neural patterns that it's like that one football, what was it? The New York giants had that football stadium field that everybody was getting hurt on and like the right. same day and, and stuff like that. Have you guys found that, these type of issues with concussion and then the nature of the sport shows a higher percentage because you mentioned two to three times greater risk right is there some if you would parcel those out have you found that to be even higher on the average if you take it to particular sports it tends to be the sports that we see with the higher rates of that are actually soccer and football tend to be the two highest soccer there's Soccer and football, there tends to be the most concussions per volume of athletes. Um, Soccer is unique, too, because there's a lot of planting and cutting and, and cleat wear, too, along with the interaction with the surfaces, similar to football, too. Um, but those are probably the two sports that we see where that relationship tends to be strongest. Just because, again, the nature of the sport, you know, there's purposeful heading, there's purposeful, you know, upper body contact and football and then there's also a lot of, you know, jump cutting. There's a lot of jump landings and things like that. Hockey, hockey, there is a lot of concussions as well. But in terms of that relationship, it's likely the strongest in those two sports, just because, again, of the nature of the sport and what the athletes are required to do. Yeah, I guess soccer is kind of sneaky in that regard because people don't oftentimes – think of it who are outside of soccer I would I know that people who are inside of soccer they're talking about even getting rid of in the youth level uh headers are not legal you right. know due to the just the very nature of you know whipping and hitting the ball and right. then head-to-head contact I mean the yep. worst nosebleed head injury that I've ever really kind of suffered was on an indoor soccer game where we both went up for the ball and I got the top of somebody's forehead right on my nose and yep. we got to see a lot of red. And I'm, I'm certain that if I ever had a concussion, that was probably the one time that I, because I mean, for those, by the way, this is only an audio recording. So people who are, you know, listening to me talk have no idea that I got this huge watermelon <laughs> head, you know? So usually I'd be the one kind of like bonk on that old video game from like the Sega Genesis. I'm the one usually delivering the concussions, but Regardless, um, it is interesting, you know, cheerleading being another one because the athletes yep, get dropped all the yep. time. Yep. And um, so when we talk about these interventions, you're talking about three, six, and even up to a year. What are some things that you found in your research help get these athletes out of this loop of right. the injury cycle or reduce that chance of that two to three times greater risk? Yeah, I think, I think this kind of speaks to the nature of how concussions are being dealt with present day compared to how they were dealt with 10, 20, 30 years ago. And what was kind of cool about really diving deep into concussions and concussion research is I kind of try looking at, you know, what was done 20, 30 years ago versus what's, what's, you know, being done now currently and how more, much more progressive we're being with, you know, management strategies. Like when I was, even when I was a athlete growing up, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there were these 
you know, miss that, you know, you should wake an athlete up every hour or else, you know, they'll fall into a coma, things like that. Like very like things that were not supported by the evidence. It was just what people thought at the time, but now we've gotten a lot better in terms of what we know about the actual injury itself and how to manage the injury. Uh, but to kind of get back to your point about what we can do from a management standpoint to kind of break that cycle. I think the first thing from like a clinical standpoint that has shown some pretty good evidence is being able to uh, almost like bucket uh, athletes into recovery trajectories. And so how this can work is based on, you know, their symptom profile, some of their neurocognitive scores, things like that, the clinical examination, which is, you know, the gold standard at this point for concussion management, it's putting athletes into these, these, these profiles. So if an athlete is more, I guess, for an example, athlete has, you know, more severe migraines, they complain of difficulty concentrating, we'd put them into a headache migraine uh, kind of bucket, and then we would manage it from that standpoint. Or if an athlete has more symptoms that are more uh, vision, vision related, vestibular related, we put them into a, a, like a vestibular ocular motor bucket. And then from there, the clinician who's, you know, overseeing the athletes would, uh, in an ideal setting, be able to give targeted uh, interventions from a management standpoint, whether it's, you know, ocular motor training, whether it's postural control uh, training, things like that. So I think that's uh, certainly a promising avenue. And that's something that Anthony Contos and uh, some of the uh, researchers at Pittsburgh have done in the past couple of years is these uh, these different uh, symptom profiles and being able to give athletes targeted treatments um, is a good thing. And then another sort of progressive thing that's been done over the past few years, this is from John Letty's group out in the University of Buffalo, uh, is being much more aggressive in terms of getting athletes back into some sort of activity early on in the early on in the return to play stage. Uh, they've done some really great work with the, something called the Buffalo uh, Concussion Treadmill tests and essentially they're getting athletes to the point of their symptoms being provoked and then they're looking at the the heart rate in which these symptoms are being provoked and then they're um they're uh what i want to say they're prescribing i guess in a sense aerobic activity that gets them to that gets them to that target heart rate getting their heart rate up getting you know getting uh you know a physiological response as they're recovering and what they've been finding is that athletes who are going through these more progressive aerobic activities early on in their uh, return to play, they tend to return to play quicker than athletes who don't, who do, you know, more of the, the classic early 2000s, just sit around, wait for your symptoms to go away. Don't look at any bright screens, sit in a dark room, things of that nature. Um, so I think those are two kind of big areas that still need more research, but I think are very promising in terms of that. Um, but a paper that actually, uh, myself and some of my other colleagues just published on in terms of this specific thing uh, is the idea of using more uh, more of the more recent motor learning strategies. Um, so to give an example, uh, if we were, you know, essentially uh, having an athlete go through some sort of jump landing assessments post-concussion, and we would uh, there's been a lot of great work in terms of this idea of an internal versus an external focus of attention. Uh, so an internal focus would be, you know, if I was cueing an athlete during a jump landing, I would say, you know, uh, don't let your knees cave in. So that's an internal focus. They're thinking of their, their actual body parts. 
Whereas if I wanted to cue uh, more of an external focus, that's essentially, um, you know, it's your outcomes of your body movement. So I would say, you know, pretend you have a, uh, a rubber band around your knees and I want you to push the rubber band out. And so that's essentially getting more of an external focus. So using these types of strategies along with uh, some of the other ones, uh, focus of attention, um, autonomy support, uh, allowing athletes a little bit more control in their, in their rehab, you know, allowing them to pick, you know, if we have a, a set and rep scheme, you know, how would you like to do it? Would you want to do a three by five? Do you want to do a five by three? Uh, something as simple as that has been demonstrating to improve motor performance. Um, so different types of motor learning strategies as well, or also offer clinicians uh, some unique opportunities there as well in terms of kind of breaking this cycle of concussions, higher risk for lower extremity injury. It's, it's all really kind of new and exciting sort of research right now. We're still kind of in that really like infancy stage, but there's a lot of exciting work that's being done on this topic. So have you guys paired that with left brain, right brain people? Have you done any work with that? Is there no, we haven't. Not at this point yet, uh, yeah, at least. Okay. So that just, you know, that'd be interesting to see. Sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The uh, other one is, have you guys looked at how that lines up with internal and external with hamstring dominant movement people and quadricep dominant movement people? So like pushers versus pullers? Right. Uh I haven't done anything personally. Haven't really seen anything out there on it. Honestly, I haven't really looked too deep into that. That's another, yeah. Because I'm just, as you're talking, my brain's on fire, man. You know, and I'm just like, these are the types of things when we talk about like those buckets or mailboxes with with those issues and things like that. Have you looked at or done any, because you mentioned the Buffalo treadmill. There was some research out there that I read. Oh gosh, I feel like it was last year or the year before where they were talking about you know, again, you talk about those myths of like no physical activity, or right. you got to wake them up every hour because they're going to fall asleep into a coma and never come back out of it. And it's like, yeah, right. they're also not getting any sleep. So they're right. not regenerating any kind of, you know, and they're just on this constant fatigue cycle. So I just like those kind of myths drive me nuts. Yep. But like, we'll touch base on that. But I want to put a pin in that right now. I do want to ask you, though, if you looked at not the treadmill stuff, but like early aerobic activity on like a recumbent bike, reducing sure. some of this stuff. Yep. The, the work from Letty's group has been, it doesn't necessarily ha- have to be like, you know, walking, running. It can be, it can be biking too. What they tend to prescribe is, is 20 minutes of more moderate to high intensity aerobic activity early on in that, early on in the recovery. It can be a bike, it can be on a treadmill. Um, just getting that general physiological response. There's also, you know, a big thing about concussions is it's a, a psychosocial sort of injury too. These athletes are away from their teammates for a little bit, you know, away from friends. They might be removed from school for a certain number of days. Um, they don't, you know, if this is the first time they've ever had a concussion, they don't necessarily, they don't necessarily have the best way to describe how they're feeling. That's another big thing too with this injury, especially like in younger athletes. You know, I've, you know, in one of my studies, the average age of my participants in the concussion group was around 11 years old. Um, so, you know, the first time having an injury like this, they're symptomatic. Uh, it can be a little scary. I mean, quite frankly, they don't necessarily know why this is happening to them. Um, so there's a big psychosocial factor with that as well. But that's where, you know, some of these more progressive strategies, being able to have these athletes do some sort of activity early on 
whether it's aerobic activity. I actually just read an article uh, a few days ago from David Howell's group out in Colorado, uh, where they were looking at the efficacy of a neuromuscular strength training program post-concussion as well. So now we're starting to see even more in terms of the management strategies and um, you know, the safety of being able to strength train pretty early on after concussion as well. Um, but yeah, the whole idea of having athletes just, you know, sit in a dark room for a week, wait till their symptoms subside is really kind of gone at this point. I think for the most part, there still might be, you know, some misconceptions out there in small pockets, but we've done, I think a much better job recently in terms of that. And that helps out. It's a huge benefit for the athletes, not only from a physical standpoint, concussion standpoint, but from that psychosocial standpoint as well, that can honestly can contribute to the symptoms too. They can help, you know, keep these symptoms lingering as you know, they're still far removed away from their teammates and their sports and things like that. It's interesting because you had mentioned in a previous interview, talking about the mechanoreceptors in the ACL. Yep. And I'm thinking about like, ACL recovery, we've gotten to a point where we feel very comfortable with getting people once the surgery has been done, getting them moving as fast as possible and as soon as possible. I mean, obviously, when I mean fast as possible, I mean, like, you know, let's get them moving, not sprinting all out or anything like that. And that this, again, truncates the the recovery process quickly, you know, and again, I, I feel like it cannot be emphasized enough that part of that isn't just the you know, the hydraulics of the system and the frame of the system, but also the, you know, the electrical system that's also needing to be worked on and rewired as well. And then as I, as I heard you talk about that, I'm putting together this concept as well with, with the concussion that those mechanoreceptors send feedback back, you know, in terms of what the brain needs to feel normal, to feel right. And then we think about like, the chemicals that make us happy. We've got dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphins. Well, the only way you can get endorphins is from laughing and, you know, a lot and then thinking things are funny and then also doing physical activity. So all of a sudden this athlete's profile, like you said, psychosocial, you're removing probably the healthiest um, and somewhat of the healthiest, easy one dopamine can be get got in all sorts of situations, but you're limiting that output of those endorphins that that athlete really needs. Yeah, um, so when you talk about like the walking, the treadmill, the weight training, do we also use those as early interventions to come back because they're also safe? relatively safe for the athletes to do in a controlled environment? Yeah. Yeah. For post-concussion, I think that's that, I mean, that's the one thing, you know, especially with concussions, most symptoms sort of peak at that 24 to 48 hour stage. So there is um, in terms of like best practices, it is recommended uh, you know, you still have a little bit of rest initially. You don't want to, you know, the, you know, next morning, these athletes are going right back into it. You know, you do need a little bit of rest. Um it's more of, I guess, what the, the evidence has shown, at least at this point, is that as long as athletes are able to tolerate the activity and they're not, you know, their, their symptoms are being, you know, provoked to a, to a high extent, as long as they're able to tolerate what they're doing, then you just start slowly progressing and increasing. What's typically done in concussion is, is what's called like a stepwise progression, it's like a six, six sort of step thing. You have initial cognitive rest then they get some sort of cognitive load, then they add some sort of physical load, and then you get 
you know, more into some type of aerobic activity, and then you'll get into more of sports specific, it's more practice, and then you'll get into, you know, ultimately that fifth final, sixth final stage is, you know, getting back into the actual game. Um, but what we're seeing is that those athletes who can get that aerobic activity sooner and are consistent with it throughout the recovery uh, tend to be the ones that have quicker uh, outcomes or symptoms subside faster, uh, things of that nature, at least, at least at this point. I'm sure there, I'm sure honestly, in the next few years, there's going to be even bigger and better advances in this just because of how much research is being done now in concussion. And we're just, we're finding out a lot more information at every single, I mean, I have daily or weekly updates uh, from PubMed of just sport concussion. It's always 30, 40 new articles just for sports related concussion. So it's exciting to see all the, all the work that's being done in this, in this field. Where are you planning on taking your research uh, in the near future? Where are you deciding you want to go? Uh, so what I've kind of transitioned, I don't want to say transition, but kind of uh, uh, an offset of what not, what I've done with the concussion stuff is trying to understand how sensory motor performance as a whole influences injury in athletes. Because the what's, what's kind of the hallmark of concussion is, you know, an altered cognitive state, um, whether it's from a symptom side or whether it's from a neurocognitive performance side, you know, they, they're worse on reaction time. They're, you know, worse on, you know, di different tests of visions initially, right. Initially, but then eventually they'll, they'll pass these, uh, these clinical tests, you know, they'll pass their impact assessment. They'll pass their, their balance assessment, things like that, or it'll return back to like a normative sort of value, but they're, these athletes were still at higher risk of concussion. So it kind of led me to down this sort of rabbit hole of, you know, are these other are sort of residual deficits or what's kind of the, the influence of sensory motor performance in and of itself, regardless of if an athlete has had a concussion or not. Um, some of the work that I've done recently, uh, some data that we're, that we're hoping to publish pretty soon was uh, looking at a pretty large group of uh, adolescent soccer, uh, and football athletes. Um, and we had them go through some different, uh, neurocognitive assessments, some ocular motor assessments as well. And we were trying to see how that performance, uh, was related to, to injury risk, lower extremity injury risk in particular. Uh, and what we found there, not to give too many spoilers, but those who were worse on measures of visual spatial attention. Again, these are athletes who didn't have any concussion, didn't have a concussion history. Um, those who were worse on measures of visual spatial attention, again, tended to be at higher risk for, for lower extremity injuries. And so that's kind of where my interests are now currently is looking at how does sensory motor performance as a whole relate to lower extremity injury. And then the other kind of uh, offset of that is now how can we train that? If we know that athletes are generally, you know, quote unquote, worse compared to other athletes, what sort of things can we do from a training standpoint to improve this performance? And then how does it relate, you know, to what they're doing on the field and their, and their injury risk? So that's kind of where my current interests are at the moment. So I know you don't want to give away the barn on that, but what are some things that you found that seem pretty obvious that coaches could implement right now that would improve? the chances of them not having that happen or, you know, scaling them up a little bit in their skill set. Yeah. 
I think, and this is kind of more uh, in like field-based sports, because that's where a lot of, you know, these sort of this research, this data has been, uh, you know, soccer athletes, football athletes, things like that. I think the first thing it comes down to in terms of this is like in terms of training the sensory motor system and, you know, enhancing performance is the situations that we put our athletes in during, during practice and how we set up our practice conditions. You know, a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but oftentimes practice conditions are set up in a way in which an athlete, their movements are already pre-planned, right? It's this idea of change of direction versus agility training. You can think of change of direction as, you know, these are movements that are already pre-planned. An athlete knows they're going to run up five yards, then they're going to cut to the left, then they're going to, you know, shuffle for three yards, and they're going to run up again another five yards. Whereas agility training is, is these, uh, you know, rapid changes of movements that are in response to different stimulus. So this could be auditory, this could be visual stimulus. I mean, if you're comparing those two, one is extremely sport specific and one is not really sport specific. When an athlete's on a football field, a soccer field, they're always reacting. They're always anticipating. They're pre-planning. They're not pre-planning. They're anticipating. They're responding. They're having to make decisions on the field. But if we set up our practice conditions where athletes really don't have to think, you know, they're already having their movements pre-planned for them, that's kind of disassociating, you know, what they're doing in practice compared to what they're actually seeing in the game. So I think that's that's something to be uh, cognizant of is how we design our practice conditions. And one, one, I guess, quick example that someone can do on a, on a soccer field is, you know, small sided games and they can manipulate the constraints of the games. They can change the dimensions of how, you know, how, you know, the, the area and the width of, uh, of the small sided games, they can manipulate how many players are in there, whether it's, you know, something like a three, three versus two, three versus one, different things like that. Um, so it's, it's really about how you manipulate, uh, practice conditions and, um, you know, how you're designing, you know, the overall concept of your practice. I think that's one way that, you know, coaches and practitioners can, uh, really start to train some of these abilities to get athletes to be moving and responding in conditions and practice that they're going to be seeing in a game. So when we're looking at these people who have, let's say, played a long time and have somehow avoided catastrophic concussions or injuries. Sure. Are you starting to see some things that they do well or are amorphically set up to handle? That's an interesting question. Um, and something I've thought about a lot too. And I think this kind of goes back to the idea of sensory motor performance. Like we see it all the time. There are quote unquote, elite level athletes in professional sports who do not have elite level athleticism. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, some NBA athletes, things like that, where you look at them, they don't, they don't particularly run very fast. They don't jump very high, but they're, you know, arguably the world's best athletes in their respective sports. So it's like, how do they even get to that level in the first place? And sort of some of the things that I'm thinking, some things that other people are thinking that these athletes just have you know, it's kind of like that, they have this heightened awareness. You know, have you ever heard that kind of saying before? Like these athletes always just seem to be in the right place at the right time. Or a perfect example, something in uh, in hockey, how they describe Sidney Crosby or like Wayne Gretzky and things like that. They always seem to be two or three steps ahead of the play. Well, honestly, in that, in that sense, to me, it's more of they had just have 
heightened sensory motor abilities, either through just they've seen the conditions enough, they're able to respond quicker than athletes. You know, Wayne Gretzky was a very skinny, you know, sort of athlete. He was not someone who you would say is, you know, this, this genetic freak and things like that. But he was just able to see, literally see things that other players weren't able to see. And you see that all the time with other athletes too, like Luka Doncic in the NBA. It doesn't have necessarily super elite level athleticism jumping out of the gym, but these athletes for one reason or another, just seem to always be able to make these right plays. And this is where we kind of think that these athletes might have these in these heightened sensory motor abilities compared to some of the athletes that they're playing against who are super freaks and they can jump out of the gym and they can get by just using their pure athleticism. Whereas these sort of athletes have to be a little more grittier. They have to kind of figure, they have to figure out different ways to complete the same goals as an athlete who can run faster or jump higher. So that's kind of where we think that, you know, this idea of sensory motor performance um, can be, you know, can be a big factor. It doesn't have to just be professional athletes. It can be, you know, adolescent athletes, college athletes, you know, you'll see these athletes who don't have elite level physical traits, but for one reason or another are still outperforming their other athletes who do actually have these elite level skills from a physical standpoint. So I think of Stephen Curry, right? Of sure, yeah, exactly. skill. I mean, he's, you know, they always show his ball handling skills and stuff, but I mean, he had a weird shot and was underpowered, obviously not the tallest guy. I mean, right. he's still quick, but not super duper fast. And I wonder if, you know, when you're talking about the research with uh, heart rate and then where these symptoms arrive with concussion, mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see where flow state, where they tend to go on a run, where they sure. tend to be on fire, um, that connects to that focus or flow state? Do they right. reach that optimal spot between too much arousal and too low arousal more yep. frequently, which allows them to move at a level where you talked about this idea of attention? So yep. tell the audience, and I know you've answered this question before, but how do you, how do you qualify attention? What does that look like to you? There's a lot of different ways that you can... I guess, describe attention. Like if I was thinking at it from a a visual attention standpoint, essentially what I'm fixating on, whether it's a a single target, multiple targets, things of that nature, something to, something that I thought was interesting in some of the research that I've read. uh, And this kind of gets back to the idea of elite athletes, not necessarily having elite physical qualities, but having elite like sensory motor qualities. What we tend to see is that higher level athletes demonstrate different gaze type of behaviors compared to non-elite athletes. Um, Give a good example. There's something what's known as like the quiet eye. uh, And essentially is where an athlete's able to fixate on a particular thing longer than a non-elite athlete is just before they're about to make a second, another movement. So they're able to fixate on something of interest. Um, And something else that elite athletes tend to demonstrate is they pick up on kinematic cues a lot better than non-elites or non-athletes. And so if I was a, you know, defending a basketball player, they actually will look at an offensive player much differently than I am, a non-elite, you know, recreational sort of basketball athlete. They pick up on cues such as foot position, such as, you know, shoulder position, whether there's going to be a deceptive offensive maneuver in the the athlete in front of them is going to try to juke them one way or another. 
again, it gets back to this idea of sensory motor qualities and, and, you know, these different visual qualities, elite level athletes literally are wired differently in that, in that sense, and that they pick up on cues. And this can be a product of nature versus nurture. You can make an argument that's because they've been in those environments for a long period of time. But again, you see these athletes with non elite level physical skills in the NBA who are, you know, dominating. And so it could be the way that they pick up on these sort of sensory cues, whether it's visual auditory, whether they're just recognizing patterns better. That's another thing too, is pattern recognition is, is very big in you know, field-based sports. They might, you know, they might be able to recognize a player, or recognize their defenders, you know, uh, typical patterns when they're cutting one way versus another way, things of that nature. They just, and there's not a lot of like hard data on this sort of stuff. It's very hard to quantify these, these sort of things. It's at this point, I guess, more theoretical in nature, but these athletes just, they, like I said, they're literally wired differently and they just pick up on cues a lot differently than the average person or even, you know, the, the non-elite sort of uh, athlete. One of the things I found very interesting was this idea of bandwidth. And you had a conversation on a different podcast about mm -hmm. this. And I know that obviously, you know, logic persists that the more things that you're taking in, yep. the harder it is to focus and have this concentration. Yep. But I oftentimes think about like, are there things that also allow these athletes to be I don't even know how to say this, but like optimally unfocused, you know, like I think about Cristiano uh, Ronaldo, who is so confident in his, in his foot placement on the ball, right. that he's not spending time looking at the ball. All of his sensory information is this is the, a guaranteed known. Like he's like, I know I have control of right. this. This is almost on autopilot. So then my skill set is literally doing what you said with Gretzky and Messi and some of these guys that you're taking in right. all this information. And that's a lot on a person's plate, right. you know, um, so that they can not only perform optimally, but they're also a, a tend to avoid injury. Like I think of Tom Brady, obviously, you know, he had that knee injury, but he's been able to play in a sport, which everybody's trying to take his head off right. for such a long period of time and still perform optimally. I just, it's, it's one of those things that really interests me because I think that's the future of us trying to figure out this puzzle of how do we keep people from getting the concussion and then getting the lower extremity injury. Right. Yeah. It's just, honestly, it's this idea of uh, you hear like this kind of, it's kind of like a, uh, like a catchphrase, like train the brain, that, that right. idea of, of, of being able to train the neurocognitive system or the ocular motor system, similar to a way that we would train the neuromuscular system. You know, if I have an athlete who has, you know, relatively weak hamstrings compared to their quadriceps, I would, you know, tailor a neuromuscular training system to improve that. And hopefully, you know, we would see a, a less likely chance of an ACL type of injury. We're just not at that point yet from a standpoint of I identifying, you know, if we know that an athlete is, has a neurocognitive quote unquote deficit, I guess, what are the best ways to train it? There's still a lot more work, I guess, that needs to be done, but that's going to be really the future is, is supplementing the neuromuscular training with neurocognitive training as well, so that we can enhance, you know, the physical qualities, just as we can enhance the physical qualities. And then we can also enhance these neurocognitive qualities as well. And hopefully the combination of those those things 
you know, less likely for injuries and ultimately increased performance in, you know, in, in our athletes. So talk about a little bit of if a coach collegiate has, you know, the world is his oyster. How much would you do of that particular type of training? What would that training look like? Yep. And then where do you place it in as a unit within a practice session? Like, sure. where, you know, front, back, middle, those type of things. How many days, how many minutes? Stuff right. Like that. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a couple more recently developed pieces of technology um, that I'm sure some of the listeners have seen or, you know, maybe even used at some point. There's things such as sensory boards, synaptic, DynaVision, things of that nature. Um, you can do a lot of different types of assessments and training on there. You can do things like we're looking at peripheral reaction time. We're looking at working memory. We're looking at multiple object tracking, things of that nature. Um, there's technology that we use currently virtual reality technology as well, um, which is pretty neat. So we would have athletes, depending on the sport that they play, if they're a soccer player, basketball, volleyball player, they would go through different sports specific scenarios in virtual reality. Um, so they'd grab a rebound, uh, they go up for a header, uh, things of that nature. Um, there's also technology, augmented reality technologies as well can be used uh, in terms of like biofeedback, which is be a nice way of, again, as I mentioned, like the internal versus external focus. If we want to uh, provide kind of a nice way to get an athlete to externally focus, uh, having some sort of biofeedback while they're doing, you know, squats, things of that nature can kind of help self-correct in a sense, uh, some of these movement patterns. Um, and there's also this, these uh, eyewear glasses, so stroboscopic eyewear. Um, they used to be Nike, uh, they used to be called these Nike vapor glasses, but then uh, they're now transitioned into synaptic. So they also have uh, strobe eyewear. Uh, what's kind of unique about those particular uh, eyewear devices is that they can be used on the practice field, you know, and so the idea behind these, these glasses is that uh, they flicker between clear and opaque, and opaque states. So it includes vision, um, but you can set different frequencies. So you can make it a lot, you can make it flicker very fast. You can uh, make it flicker slow and it'll include more of a vision. Um, the idea behind that is uh, one athletes are forced to process visual information much more efficiently because if some of their vision is being occluded, they have to be able to recognize, you know, patterns, anticipate things while they still have uh, clear vision. Two, what could be nice about these um, is that it it could help reweight uh, some of our sensory processing. Uh, the particular thing that I'm thinking of with that is that uh, post ACL uh, patients who go, who undergo, uh, ACL surgery, they tend to be extremely vision dominant and will offload the vestibular and somatosensory systems. And so by occluding vision, by including some of these sort of, um, training with, with strobe type of glasses, it can, it can almost in a sense, reweight back some of those systems. Cause those are important systems as well. Proprioceptive, uh, vestibular systems, especially post ACL, uh, so that these athletes aren't too overly reliant on their visual systems. Um, so there's different technologies like that, but in terms of including it within um, a practice model, a, tra a training model, 
in an ideal setting, you would want to have these athletes do it a couple times a week. And it doesn't have to be long periods of time, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes at a time, three times a week, whether it's doing some sort of sensory uh, type of training, whether it's wearing these eyewear technology, uh, these strobe glasses. Um, there's been, there's been some intervention types of studies there um, where these athletes go through these different types of training interventions. They don't have to wear it for an extensive period of time, but they do they do tend to demonstrate uh, enhanced neurocognitive sensory motor performance after going through training interventions, similar to what you would do with like a strength training intervention. You know, if I have an athlete, you know, do lower extremity training for six weeks, you know, I'm hopefully their power, their force output is going to be better after those six weeks. It's the same idea with this too. If I'm using these different technologies, I'm hoping that my athletes reaction time, their pattern recognition is going to be better. So it's, Again, I like to relate it back to like neuromuscular training. We have all these tools and different things for training power and force and stability and things like that. But now we're starting to see tools come out to train reaction time and working memory and pattern recognition and things like that. So I think those are, again, it comes back to this idea. I think this is really kind of the future of, of training athletes is using this within our, within our training models. You know, it's really interesting when you talk about sight and sensory offloading, because there is some research out there done by, or conversations that have been had by Chris Corfist, and he's one of the guys who's under this umbrella of Feed the Cats. He's training a couple of Chicago Bears football players at the moment. He's kind of a speed guy. He's, he goes down some really wild rabbit holes. But one of the things that he said is if you look at any kid who has terrible eyesight when they are young, they never are elite sprinters. If you look at elite sprinters around now, granted, they're not going to be wearing the Chris Sabo rec specs or, or anything like that. But has there been any data to show poor sight in connection to early on to sports performance? Obviously, I would think that obviously you can't see in targeted sports, but even in gross motor sports, like track and field and even football to a degree, you know, depending on where you're at, you don't need to necessarily have the best eyesight. Right. Um, have you seen anything any research on that at all? Not, not in terms of like, if, if like kids initially have poor eyesight, how that relates to future. But I will say that out of the, uh, I guess, neurocognitive assessments and how it relates to injury, visual type of tests tend to be the most sensitive, meaning that athletes who are worse on specific assessments, specific assessments of, you know, visual attention, uh, visual motor reaction time, those tend to be the athletes that are the higher risk for lower extremity injuries. And that's, you know, some of the work we've done that again, as I mentioned, still going under that publication process was in kids but we've seen this as well in college athletes as well. So higher, higher level, older types of athletes. Um, I mean, vision is extremely important. I mean, obviously, you know, if you can't see something, it's very hard to perceive, you know, what's going to happen and how to recognize a pattern if, you know, you can't see it, but, um, or if you can't see it fast enough in a sense, I guess that's really the big thing. Um, and that honestly, those milliseconds and stuff, I, the, the, the number I like to come back to all the time is that, when an athlete hits the ground, they will likely tear an ACL within the first 40 to 60 milliseconds of the time that they hit the ground. And so that's yeah, very fast, right? It's a very rapid type of injury and the tissue just, the load exceeds the tolerance so fast. 
And so if we can get an athlete to improve their visual reaction time by 10 or 20 milliseconds, that could be huge. That could really honestly be the difference between them getting injured and not getting injured. And so that's why these sort of technologies and this kind of line of thinking now, you know, using more small sided games, training more agility type of qualities can be extremely important because when we're talking about injuries like this, it's really a matter of milliseconds. And if we can, you know, if we can increase that time over which athletes are able to respond, give them more time to actually respond and make a decision, then they're likely going to get not get injured. So. So next stupid question from the dumb guy here who doesn't have the doctorate in the, in this, in this particular conversation, but there's probably a lot of people out there who are like, I don't know this either, but has there been any research in terms of people getting vision correction through LASIK and then seeing a, increased length of time of health right so health timeline you right. know like they're staying healthier longer after lasik versus those who maybe don't have that intervention like where previously they were injury prone right and now they're not because of that have you seen anything i haven't regard? seen anything particularly but one actually interesting example that i have seen recently is Jameis winston from the from the saints the quarterback from the new orleans saints so he recently had LASIK, I want to say about in the off season, maybe six months ago. And what was interesting, because I was reading some of his, you know, some of his background, some of the quotes that he had on it. When he was, when he was playing at Florida State, when he was playing at Tampa Bay, he actually complained that he would see like double sort of vision, which for a quarterback is kind of, you know, kind of insane. But then he went through LASIK surgery over the off season or, or pretty recently. And now he said it's like a whole new world on the field. And so it's pretty incredible, like that he made it to that high of a level and was treating, like a national championship quarterback, you know, an NFL starting quarterback. And now he's essentially seeing the field better than he ever has in his life from playing peewee football all the way up to now. Um, so he'll be kind of an interesting case study because uh, his last year in Tampa, he threw a lot of touchdowns, but he threw a lot of interceptions too. And honestly, it, it could potentially, that could definitely you know, be a factor there. If he wasn't able to see the field as clearly as he can now, I mean, especially in a sport like NFL football, where everything is so fast and rapid, uh, he'll be kind of an interesting case study to kind of follow throughout this season. Cause I think he's now named the starting quarterback for the saints and um, seeing how he plays. I haven't seen anything particularly about that, but again, uh, it kind of speaks to, you know, how important vision is, you know, you know, athletes, if they can see the field better, they're probably going to feel more confident in their abilities as well, especially in really chaotic, you know, fast sports like football, soccer, hockey, things of that nature. So what I'm interested to hear too, now that we're on this kind of NFL conversation is there have been a massive uptick in hamstring pulls, ACL tears, and yet we are limiting physical contact. So I would think that we're being more conscientious to try to avoid concussions more than ever. Yet right. we have this massive uptick in that particular injury. What do you suspect is leading to this now that we have a pretty decent understanding of the effects of CTE and we're trying to be smart about concussion protocols and all this kind of stuff. But yet we have these ACL injuries through the roof. Where, where is that coming from? Uh, it could be, again, it's kind of me speculating uh, a little bit at this point, but it's the idea of whether these types of athletes are being adequately prepared for, you know, what they're about to face in a 16 week, 17 week season now, uh, in terms of off season training, 
in terms of, uh, you know, being able to uh, get enough load in terms of sprinting throughout practice. And that, and that gets into a whole another argument of practice design and hamstring injuries. But you're right, like it's limiting contact, but it, in the other issue is you're sort of limiting intensity too to an extent in, in practice now when you don't have as much contact anymore. But then when you're getting out into a game, you know, you're essentially going from 50, 60, 70% intensity to now, you know, Sunday, Monday night, we're at a hundred percent intensity. And this isn't, this isn't a football thing. This is, you know, a soccer, I need any sort of field-based sport where there's, you know, multiple events in a short period of time. Um, but there's always this trade-off too. You don't want to get into a situation where, you know, you're overloading your athletes during practice. And then when they get to the game, now they're underprepared for the actual, it's, it's tough. Like these are really tough uh, sort of questions to answer. And it gets more into like a, you know, philosophical sort of way and how to prepare athletes. Um, but I think that's where some of this stuff could potentially be stemming from is that they they could be to an extent underloaded in their in their practice and then they're going from a relatively low to moderate intensity to a very high intense situation on on Sunday or you know on Monday and Thursday in the soccer game when they have you know two soccer or three soccer games in a in a week um i think that that honestly could could potentially be one rationale again it's just sort of my speculation at this point um, but yeah, that's sort of what we're seeing in terms of lower body injuries as a whole. We've done a lot of research. I'm thinking more like the ACL sort of stuff. We've done a ton of research on it in the last 10, 20 years. But if you look at the actual injury rates across the board in kids and college kids, uh, and professional athletes, those rates of injury haven't changed at all, actually. And, um, my sort of theory on that is, you know, We've studied so much of the mechanics of the injury that we haven't really given a consideration to like the neurocognitive system as much like, you know, including the brain into this whole thing, but it could come back to the idea of these athletes just might not be physically loaded to the conditions that they need to be, whether it's, you know, from, you know, getting enough sprinting uh, in their practice or just getting enough contact or getting enough agility type of work within their within their practice during the week and then having to go into these really stressful, chaotic, cognitively loaded environments. Uh, that's just, again, my kind of speculation on it. Yeah. They always talk about the game speed, right. And how the right. NFL game speed never matches up with college or, or wherever right, they're right. at. And then I keep going back to this idea of that sensory data, right. And finding that flow that limits concussions, that limits ACL tears and being aware in this flow state where you can pay attention to the things that are not guaranteed. Like you said, um, the difference between agility and what was the other thing you said? Change of direction. Change of direction, right? Yep. So agility is this ability to rapidly respond to the ever-changing environment in front of you, right? Versus right. change of direction is literally go there, make a 45 degree cut, right, and right. go there, right? And so I always wonder, like, we're so hesitant to have the people play and, and do a lot of practice. We're so hesitant to have, you know, training camp be more exhaustive, more difficult, more challenging. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, maybe we've gone, you know, in the wrong direction with this that's leading to 
the game speed slows down, the cognitive information slows down. It's harder to get to flow state because you've never experienced it in the months before you go into this gladiator thing right. where you've got a guy trying to smash you up against the boards in hockey or a guy who's trying to rip your head off, you know, behind the line. It's, it's just very, it's very interesting. And I, and I, and I, it's one of my big pet peeves, you know, and then the NFL is like, oh, we're going to spend $4 million on figuring out why so many football players have hamstring injuries. And it's like $4 million, huh? That's what that's worth to you. $4 million. The other injury that tends to, besides concussions and ACLs, the next one that disrupts professional sports the most yep. is probably hamstring injuries. Yeah, now, absolutely. Granted, you, absolutely. You're probably not going to have that coming back length of time that an ACL obviously right. causes where a concussion, you know, you can come back a little bit sooner. But as you said, right. then it might lead to this cascading of other things that come down the pipe. Right. Yeah. Um, have you seen anything with concussions and hamstrings as well as being another one of those things? I haven't seen hamstrings in particular. At this point, the data is more more knees and more knees and ankles at this point, you know, joint, you know, joint sprains, things of that nature, um, you know, ankle sprains, things like that. Um, nothing too much on hamstrings, but you're right. Hamstrings are a really big deal. The, the thing about hamstrings too, is they can linger for a while too, you know, in sprinters and football players and things like that. You know, you could have a guy with a tweaked hamstring for, a, you know, a month, two months. So that, it, you know, it is a really big deal in the NFL and they again, you tend to see the most hamstring injuries in preseason camp. Again, because these athletes come, you know, come from an off season, and then you know they start ramping up intensity, and they get into preseason games, and that gets it, you know, ramped up intensity as well. Um, is again, this is the idea of you know getting these athletes sprinting enough during practice and things, and then it's just it's just essentially it's just preparing the neuromuscular system appropriately for what they're going to see you know during live competition because comp you know intensity levels are always the highest in competition compared to practice you know we don't necessarily want to get our practice conditions all the way up to to competition because you want to you know prepare for the actual competition but you do need to sort of micro dose these sort of things within practice you know that can be you know sprinting that can also be you know agility type of training as well sensory motor type of training you know being able to micro dose these high intensity efforts during practice, I think can help translate, you know, to the game conditions, obviously, and, you know, help enhance performance, but also reduce risk of injury potentially as well. For sure. And for me, you know, as a, a sprint coach, you know, it's like, well, <clears throat> you know, I'm not going to be seeing a lot of concussions in track and field, unless we have somebody get hurt in the pole vault or high jump or a catastrophic thing. Like somebody gets hit in the head with a discus or something insane. But what I do think about is what if they had a concussion playing basketball in the winter, sure, right? Sure. In the fall, we had a young lady and this again is totally anecdotal, but it took her a total of, you know, two years to get out of this funk that she was in with injuries and everything after she had this concussion. It was incredible how long it took. And it was like she was a different person. Right. And by the time finally we got her from her sophomore year where she suffered that really bad concussion to her senior year, it's like then she finally became the player that we all are, the, the track and field athlete that we always thought she was going to be. She ended up being, 
you know, all state in the long jump was almost a, you know, state qualifier in the 300 hurdles. If she would have made it just by our system, she'd have been all state in the threes and she ended up being on our four by two and, you know, was a state champion in our four by two, but it took that long to get her back to normal. Right. You know, and it was just one of those things that I think that people also need to be aware of is just because it doesn't happen in your sports season, you need to be aware of. Sure. Like, that's yeah, a thing sure. I feel like and coaches don't ask that. Hey, have you ever had a concussion? Like that should be on the questionnaire of right. every every coach when they have these athletes. Right. Especially when you get an athlete new to your program and they like they play multiple sports. Yeah, absolutely. I think that should be something that coaches should at least be aware of and at least recognize. I think it is, I think it is important. Yeah. Concussions can, uh, they're so individualized. One athlete can have a concussion and they'll be, you know, okay in a couple of weeks. And then another athlete, uh, can still have, you know, severe type of symptoms, you know, six months, a year down the line. They're just, we don't necessarily know at this point, why that is why there's such an individualization of you know recoveries and things like that but there are certain situations uh i've run into one too uh with a female uh gymnast who uh sustained a concussion and then you know was having issues of you know memory loss you know a year down a year afterwards still having issues with that um but then you'll see other athletes who are returned in two weeks and everything seems fine. It's just, it's, it's a tough injury. It's, it's similar. I like to compare it a lot. I like to parallel concussions and ACL injuries. They're so complex and so kind of difficult to solve, uh, but they make it exciting and they, you know, they keep me up and I think about all this kind of stuff all the time. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it's something that, you know, if you have an incoming freshman coming in or a new athlete, um, who you haven't worked with, you know, new to the sport and things like that at the high school level. Um, I think it's def- definitely something that you should ask about um, and just be cognizant of. And whether that's getting it from, you know, the school nurse, things like that, at least be aware because it could, you know, potentially influence how your athlete performs and, and d- different things like that. Yeah, it's crazy. So, like, I on my form that I hand out to my athletes we have that. Hey, if you have any injury history, but one right, of the things right. just with listening to you talk about this, calling out specifically, have you had a concussion? Right. How long ago was that concussion? Right. Or whether and you've then, had multiple concussions, things like that. Yep. Correct. Right. Cause I mean, I'm thinking about your buddy who had six known and maybe another six unknown. I'm like, right. gosh, his head. Oh my goodness. His poor head, you know, right. like what, what, what would happen and what's the outcome of that? So two more questions I got for you. Sure. Okay. Um, this being one about, have you done any research at all with athletes with this type of subject and concussions and ADD or ADHD and concentration? Where's the research on that when it comes to some of these cognitive delays or, or injuries and frequency of concussions? Anything on that? Yeah, there actually is. There actually is a bit on that. Um, I've done a little bit myself, but the general consensus is, uh, that I guess I don't want to even say general consensus. That might be too strong of a statement, but athletes who have a, a, a diagnosis or a history of ADD, ADHD tend to be at actually higher risk for concussion um, in and of itself. I can't necessarily speak to as to why that's the case. I don't know enough of that, of that literature, but that does tend to be a risk factor for concussion um, is having that uh 
initial diagnosis of ADD, ADHD, a learning disability, um, things of that nature. There's definitely some research that does that does support that. That's wild. And, and full disclosure, peek behind the curtain for the audience that's listening in. I I was diagnosed with ADD at a very very young age, and and it's interesting because it it was based on focus. You know, I was never the hyperactive version or anything right. like that. But I would be one of those people that I'm in class. And I, uh, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about, you know, GI Joes or comic books or video games when I'm supposed to be, you know, doing English right. or writing or whatever. And I think about like, where's my focus when I'm on the field? The one thing I would ask is where have you done data on or research on the idea of the warrior mental type? I don't know if you've heard of that kind of thing or the thinker gene. Have you done any research on that? I haven't done anything, anything personally on that. No. Okay. So, so this idea of the warrior gene and it's very controversial, but it's this idea of like distracted in practice, low attention span and low attention span environments, you know, where then in high attention demand, high stress environments, very focused, very attentive, you know, very uh, positive outputs. Mm, Then the thinker gene is the reverse of very good in practice, lots of concentration in low stress environments, but tend to over arouse in high stress environments and, you know, all the negative aspects of being right. over aroused and not being able to take in that sensory data. So there's something there too, that would be interesting. And again, the research on that is somewhat controversial um, because they just haven't really parceled it out yet. And right, there's right. some, obviously some, uh, how can I say this social, things that come with that too, and the type of people that tend to have that. So it's an interesting concept. All right, last question for you, buddy. Okay. When we're talking about the research that you're doing and the research you're going to do, if you could look 25, 30 years from now, what do you hope to contribute to the scientific community when it comes to this particular sports performance and and the world of athletics? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I hope to contribute is the way in which we manage concussion in terms of a safe return to sport. Um, It's going to be near impossible to prevent concussion as much as we would like to do that. Uh, Just the nature of the the various sports and things like that. Um, They're going to happen ultimately, but my hope is that when they do have, it's similar to ACL injuries, you know, we're going to try as best we can to prevent them, but they're going to happen at the, you know, at the end of the day. And if they were to happen, you know, ultimately my goal would be to get these athletes back and returning to sport and being safe in sport and enjoying the benefits of sport ultimately. Cause you know, I'm a big advocate of, of youth athletes and uh, adolescents playing sport. Cause I think there's a ton of positives. I received a ton of positives playing sports I'm sure you would agree, Ryan, on that as well. But um, that's one of my goals uh, is, you know, safety with concussion if it were to occur and getting these athletes back. And so they don't have any negative sort of consequences. Uh, I think my second, I guess, main goal would be this idea of of training the brain. I want to get to the point where we are with, you know, neuromuscular training and you know, strength training and, you know, increasing power output and force output. I want to get to the point where, you know, we're improving reaction time performance. We're getting athletes to recognize patterns quicker, you know, that sort of concept, um, which we're pretty far behind on because it's so, when you start talking about the brain, like 
it's a lot different than just saying, you know, go do a set of five by five squats and then we'll increase your force and your power output. Um, when you're starting, you know, really talking about how we train the neurocognitive ocular motor systems, train the brain in general, it's extremely complex and it's going to take a lot of effort from a lot of people outside of just myself um, to kind of get to that point. But I think we can make, we already have made some good progress there, but I think we can get even to a better point to where now, you know, we're training these systems simultaneously. And again, it's building, uh, you know, robust, durable athletes so that they are performing at their highest level and that they're staying injury free. So I'd say those are probably my two biggest goals uh, down the line. I'm pretty excited about it too, because it's, you know, I'm passionate about these topics and passionate about working with athletes and things of that nature. Well, it's amazing when you think about how things come together that a social media discussion about a concept right. leads a person such as yourself to be sparked and go, oh, wow, that is a really cool topic. Yeah, Let's absolutely. see where we can take this. And then all of a sudden, and I, you know, not to put too much pressure on you, doctor, but thinking about the, the opportunities that you're going to create, the things that are going to blossom out that you're going to be able to influence not just in establishing there's these connections, which is very clear, you've already done that, but then pre-interventions, post-interventions, right. truncating their return to sport, improving the athlete in general, just like you mentioned, and all of the science that is now going to be able to scaffold off of some of your original findings, that's right. going to help so many athletes stay injury free so many coaches coach better and so many athletes not lose as much time when one of those really awful catastrophic things tend to show up so that's awesome man i, I appreciate this hour i know a lot of people got a lot of value out of our conversation today um if they want to get in touch with you where and when can they do that probably the best way like like yeah everything kind of spurned off of a tweet a couple of years ago but probably that's probably the best way to reach out to me directly i'm pretty active on it so it's uh at jason avedesian j-a-s-o-n uh a-v-e-d-e-s-i-a-n so at jason avedesian uh on twitter um i'm pretty active i like to post a lot share my thoughts I engage with people um, that's kind of how you and I got set up with the podcast sort of thing. It was just, you know, through social media chatting. Um, but yeah, that's probably at this point, probably the best way to get in touch with me there. Well, Jason, I appreciate it. And to the audience, make sure you share this out, give us, you know, give us some feedback, let us know how we're doing, put a review out there, connect us, you know, cause if this information doesn't get out to other people, like this is stuff that for not only coaches or sports performance people or physical therapists or people doing research, this is the stuff that helps when we scale this out and we, in, we boost signals like Jason's out to other people, the influence in positive outcomes cannot be highlighted enough. So thank you guys for listening, giving us your time. Um, and remember, be smart, be safe, make good decisions. We love you. Peace out.